David arose from his bed after noon and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof of his house a woman washing herself, and she was very beautiful. So the king sent and inquired who the woman was, and it was told to him, She is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. From the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. Today, most people would call it Turkey. The Turks have, after all, lived there for a good thousand years. However, in the scope of human history, they are still latecomers. Once, the peninsula on which the nation of Turkey sits, once this peninsula was known as Asia Minor, being a near but small portion of that vast continent against which European powers would often face off. The Greeks versus the Persians, the Romans versus the Parthians, the Crusaders against the Muslims, and the Allied powers of the First World War versus the Ottoman Empire. It is a peninsula with quite a history, history with deep roots that extend far back into our past. The peninsula is also known as Anatolia, and for the sake of clarity, I will refer to this peninsula with that name from now on. I have mentioned it glancingly before with reference to the Black Sea Flood and to the possible origin of the Indo-European language here, though consensus places that homeland a little farther east and north. I have also mentioned the Hittites in previous episodes, and this episode will focus on that ancient culture for the most part. The Hittites were a nation that became powerful in this area in the early 2nd millennium BC. They never quite equaled the grandeur or longevity of the Egyptians or the Babylonians, perhaps, but they influenced these kingdoms. Furthermore, they represent the first powerful Indo-European-speaking nation to appear in Western history, being descended from that culture which, most likely, originated somewhere north and east of the Black Sea, around 4000 BC, and spread out from there in all directions. The progress of Indo-European culture into the south was limited by the powerful, already existing nations there in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Now, the entire scope of this podcast, each of its eight series to be produced over the next several years, will be focused primarily on the extraordinary success of Indo-European culture in Europe itself. Here, though, in Bronze Age Anatolia, we will meet the first such culture, the first speakers of an Indo-European language to leave their historical mark. The Hittites appear on the scene around the time that Hammurabi is coming to power in Babylon. They were in place, perhaps, long before, but it is now, in the opening centuries of the second millennium BC, that they become influential in the civilized world and in the increasingly urban worlds of the Near East. Anatolia will remain in our focus for a long time. In the time of the Greeks, it will be the location of the fabled city of Troy and the location of many powerful Greek city-states during the Persian and Peloponnesian Wars. Here, Alexander the Great will meet and defeat the forces of the Persian king for the first time. The Romans will build their new capital, Constantinople, just across the shores of the Bosporus from Anatolia. And this region will be the heartland of the so-called Byzantine Empire, until most of the peninsula is conquered by Arab Muslims in the 7th century AD. But Greek Christians and Latin Crusaders will continue to vie for the possession of this land for centuries more. And even after Anatolia has passed permanently into the hands of the Turks by the 14th century, it will loom large in the background of Western history, 
as the capital of the Ottoman Empire, which will menace European powers and possess much of the continent for centuries. So we have made that first step, promised long ago, to turn our eyes west. And though we have not yet reached continental Europe, it is ever so close, just across the Straits of the Bosporus. If you listen closely, you can hear the gods thunder atop Mount Olympus. Look into the distance and see a fleet of ships, captained by Achilles, Agamemnon, Odysseus, and others, heave into view in search of revenge and glory on the coasts of Anatolia. We are not sure where they came from. We know that the Hittites were Indo-European speakers, so we know that they share an ancestral homeland with all other such peoples, most likely on the steppes north and east of the Black Sea, 2,000 years before their arrival in Anatolia. But what was their route into the peninsula? Some speculate that they came over the Bosporus from Europe, having first made their way around the northern shores of the Black Sea. Others posit that they came into the peninsula overland from the east. However they arrived, they soon made their capital at a place called Hattusa, in the north-central region of the peninsula. The name comes from the Hatti, the people who inhabited central Anatolia before the Hittites moved in. The Hatti are another mystery of human history. They spoke a language that was apparently neither Semitic nor Indo-European, and their history in this land is largely unknown, but many of their words came into the Hittite language, and the Hittites kept the name of the capital without alteration. And while we distinguish the Hittites from their predecessors in the land, I'll take a moment to clear up another possible source of confusion. The Bible mentions Hittites more than once in the Old Testament. Most famous, perhaps, is Uriah the Hittite, an elite soldier of King David's and the husband of Bathsheba. King David falls in love with Uriah's wife and impregnates her during an affair while Uriah is away fighting. The king has Uriah sent into extreme danger in battle, and the Hittite dies while fighting his king's war. Subsequently, David brings Bathsheba into his household, the child of their union being the future King Solomon. But more on all that when we study the Israelites. Anyway, it is unknown whether or not these various Hittites mentioned in the Bible are actually the same Hittites of Anatolia. Some speculate that they may have been just a local indigenous people among the Israelites, and that the vagaries of translation and the passage of thousands of years have left us with some confusion about their identification. But by 1800 BC anyway, the Hittites were established in Anatolia and quickly began to expand their realm. As mentioned in the previous episode, they were able to invade Babylonia and bring an end to the Amorite dynasty of kings, though they did not achieve dominion over the lands of Mesopotamia. The kings of the Hittites, over the course of the next few centuries, were also able to make the pharaohs of Egypt recognize them as equals in diplomatic exchanges. They were a solidly Bronze Age people, possessing great material wealth. While initially our knowledge of the Hittite life was scant, ongoing archaeology has revealed that the Hittites were not merely people living on the fringes of great civilizations like Egypt and Babylonia. Instead, they were very much themselves a cultured and capable civilization, mining a variety of metals, engaging in widespread trade, and producing art that has survived in the form of pottery and sculpture and more. This artwork is actually very similar in their later days to Babylonian work of the same time period. 
On one level, this makes sense, since we have established that the Hittites also used a cuneiform script, like the ancient Sumerians, but with their own particular usage. They wrote one line from left to right and the succeeding line from right to left. While they may have possessed a culture all their own, they were quick to adapt useful and beautiful things from their neighbors to the south. However, this kinship with Babylonian culture is also odd in that the Hittites come from a distinct language group. It may be that they entered the area much more impoverished in terms of refined culture, although they certainly had already achieved a technological progress. They possessed horses and bronze equipment and weapons, which probably allowed them to overcome the native population so handily. By 1800 BC, they may have already possessed the chariot, which was a new innovation that they used a couple centuries later to defeat forces sent against them in war by the Egyptians and the Babylonians. We tend now to think of the chariot and associate it with the Egyptians, but it was originally a Hittite vehicle. Now, the Hittite connection with Babylonia went beyond writing and art. The gods of the Hittites over time, their mythologies, were heavily influenced by Babylonia. The earliest archaeology of the Hittites shows that they initially possessed traditional Indo-European-type gods, but they quickly adopted the gods of the Hatti into their pantheon, the Hatti, that mysterious predecessor culture in Anatolia. And after some more centuries passed and their contacts with Babylonia grew, so did the resemblance of the two mythologies. Such was the sophistication of the Babylonian world and the respect that surrounding cultures had for it. Yes, the Babylonian culture, as well as the Egyptian, had great influence on Hittite art and Hittite culture in general, as far as we can tell. But it is hard to be sure of any details in the matter for more than one reason. With regard to their art, the many sculptures, pottery, and other items that have come down to us from their time, the haphazard archaeology of the 19th century has unfortunately left us with much confusion. Many of us alive today have been thrilled to watch Indiana Jones on the big screen, eagerly snatching precious artifacts from their ancient places, repeating more than once that said item belonged in a museum, and of course enjoying all sorts of adventures with beautiful women while simultaneously defeating the Nazis. However, this keenness to place ancient artifacts in museums, especially during the early days of modern archaeology, did a great deal of harm to our historical timelines. This is particularly true of the Hittite timeline. Where overly eager archaeologists and brazen treasure hunters disturbed or removed items from Babylonian and Egyptian digs, it was possible to reconstruct the timeline of those cultures because many such artifacts bore inscriptions. These inscriptions were often attributions to one king or another, and they were used to determine the location and the time that the piece was created in. With Hittite artwork, however, there was unfortunately no such recourse to this method because Hittite art rarely bore inscriptions. There is neither attribution to king nor artist associated with most of these pieces. Therefore, historians have had to do some guesswork in order to date a lot of the museum pieces now scattered around the world. Somewhat like the Egyptian timeline, the history of the Hittite Empire, which lasted until the end of the Bronze Age, is divided into old, middle, and new kingdoms, as well as pre-imperial and post-imperial eras. These divisions show not just changes in political dynasties, but also in the artwork produced and these changes furthermore tell us something about the development of Hittite culture. And some elements in this artwork 
give us another faint scent of those Western traditions that we have sought since the beginning of this podcast. The earliest work seems to show both the influence of Hittite culture prior to their arrival in Anatolia and influences from the civilizations which they conquered on that peninsula, such as the Hattians. Interestingly, during the early period of their rule over the peninsula, there is a greater amount of artwork depicting animal figures, both predators and prey, among them lions and deer, in hunting scenes and some some representations of what are probably the Hittite gods. Pieces of art from the Old Kingdom of the Hittites, therefore, tend to be such figurines and other such small three-dimensional art forms. Later artwork from the Middle and New Kingdoms of the Hittites displays changes in themes and in aspirations of grandeur. During these periods, artists moved away from the hunting scenes and the religious themes. Instead, artwork depicted scenes of royalty and of entertainment. This is also the period when there was greater contact and cultural exchange with the civilizations to the south, in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Many of these later pieces are large sculptures, including statues and gates carved from stone. Most famous, perhaps, is a stone gate in the form of a pair of carved sphinxes, which creates a tantalizing connection to Egypt. As with many other details in the Hittite story, though, we have no further information. Were these sphinxes part of the common patrimony of cultures in the area, or did they inherit the image of sphinxes from the Egyptians? We will ask ourselves the same questions when it comes to the story of Oedipus and the Sphinx in Greek mythology. One particular piece of Hittite pottery, a decorated vase from the Old Kingdom period, also suggests another cultural link in the region, but this link takes us westward, toward the Aegean Sea, and toward Greece. On this famous vase, a man is depicted in the ancient sport of bull-leaping. This theme can be found on artwork spread around the ancient world, but most particularly in the area of the Levant and the Aegean Sea. By mentioning the Aegean here, I slightly widen the scope of the geography utilized so far on this podcast. The Aegean is a portion of the Mediterranean Sea, lying off the western coast of Anatolia. Its other limits are defined by the shores of Greece and by Crete, a large island in the Mediterranean, north and west of the Egyptian coast. The cultures of this region, known for many things that we will begin to study in a few episodes, also produced artwork depicting the sport of bull leaping. Now, the term bull leaping probably sounds strange to you. More familiar may be the sport of bull fighting, the idea of which, more often than not, generates a little disdain in the minds of the average Westerner today, though the sport lives on in Spain, Portugal, and in parts of Latin America. The two sports, bull leaping and bullfighting, are probably related and go back to the earliest period of human civilization. But bull leaping, from what we can tell, most likely involved a bull being set loose in some environment, perhaps something like a modern ring or rodeo setting. The leapers are those that remain in the enclosure with the bull and try to avoid his charges. The pottery that remains from these ancient times seems to make a great deal of the acrobatics involved in dodging the bull. And, As a sign of how we still retain, even if only in a vestigial manner, some of the oldest traditions of our ancestors, this sport of bull leaping is still practiced in parts of southern France today, in a form that is probably much more limited than it would have been in the ancient world. The raging bull has been replaced by a cow, who is restrained by a rope, and is rendered virtually incapable of harming the human participants. Now, all this noted, it is important to remember, at this point in history, the significance of the bull and of cattle in general, for people in the ancient world, and specifically for civilized man, that is, 
humans who lived in agricultural societies organized around cities. The bull represented many things. He represented strength, certainly, and is often used to represent a god, as we have already seen multiple times in discussing Mesopotamian and Egyptian culture. Think of the golden calf, also, that the Israelites worshipped in the desert after Moses rescued them from Egypt. But bulls and cows probably also loom large in the ancient mind due to the fact that they provided beef and milk, important sources of reliable animal protein that probably had a great deal to do with the success of agricultural humans in the late Stone Age milieu, when domesticated protein began to replace protein derived from hunted game. Remember, though, that with regard to ancient bull leaping, that is terrifying as a modern bull might be, for example, when set loose in a ring to battle with a man armed only with a sword and a cape, the bulls of this time period, the second millennium BC, would have been much more closely related, related to the auroch, the fierce and massive wild ancestor of all modern cattle. And the people of this agricultural age would have probably been shorter in stature than most of us are today, due to the higher availability of protein in the modern diet. So, facing such a creature, something so much larger, so much fiercer than the domesticated creatures that we know today, would have been truly awesome, a feat that is hardly done justice by a few remaining simple depictions on the surfaces of ancient pottery. Notably, the sport of bull leaping and its artistic depiction on ancient Hittite pottery is among the first cultural connections that will function as points of similarity as we transition away from the ancient Near East and toward the Aegean, and eventually Greece in the next podcast series beginning this spring. Soon we will look at Bronze Age Crete, and then ancient Israel, where we will encounter a large number, number of recognizable ideas and tra traditions that we continue to preserve in our cultural soul, even today. Hittites possessed a political system somewhat distinct to those of their southern neighbors in Mesopotamia and in Egypt. In the West, we are knowledgeable, to one extent or another, of both democracy and feudalism, though most people today really know the latter only through fairy tales of kings and peasants. While there are kings and queens and assorted royalty and nobility even today in Europe, it has been a long time since anyone in Europe has been truly ruled by a king a king the likes of which existed in the Middle Ages, let's say. Yes, a century ago, the Germans were ruled by an autocratic Kaiser, but a close investigation reveals that he was restricted in many ways by various elements in society and by other powerful men and women associated with the government. Truly, none of the rulers in the West, not now and not even in medieval times, none of them really possessed the authority of the ancient rulers of Egypt and Mesopotamia. In Mesopotamia, rulers were typically treated like gods. In Egypt, the rulers were gods, quite simply. The pharaoh was carried off to the other world, according to belief, to the world of the other gods, after his death. Unimaginable expenses were incurred upon the nation to ensure that the king had a suitable resting place. Feast your eyes on the enduring pyramids and ask yourself, what other man or woman has built such an edifice in all the history since, which stands still and attests to his vainglory? But with the Hittites, we have a different take on kingship, a distinctly Western perspective, which will endure in Europe and have an effect on political systems up to the present day. 
To begin with, the king of the Hittites ruled in a sort of constitutional monarchy. There were other men in the government who held offices that were essentially autonomous, endowed perhaps not with veto power over the king, but with enough innate capability to stand against him. Furthermore, the kingdom, or empire that it became, was governed under a feudal system in which appointed men ruled over fiefs in the name of the king and, as these things usually go, tried to turn their posts into something hereditary. Now, it should be remembered that even in Egyptian and Mesopotamian kingdoms, autocratic, deified rulers did have limits to their power. The masses regarded them as deities, but their fellow bluebloods, the royalty and the nobility and the ranking members of the priesthood, all of them possessed status and power within their realms, which they used to influence the so-called godlike kings. But among the Hittites, and in all Western powers ever afterward, there was no such perception of the king. Kings in the West would occasionally acquire a religious status, a sacred status, but never would they be equated with or confused with gods. Take, for example, the soldiers of the army of Alexander the Great. These men respected their king and obeyed his orders, but they were not afraid to question him or even defy him, since they knew that he was but a man, a great man certainly, but not an errant. When, after conquering Persia and taking up residence in Babylon, Alexander began to regard himself as something more than a man, just as his Persian predecessors had done, his men rankled and voiced their dissension, much to his dismay, and to the great surprise of his new Mesopotamian subjects. For them, it was unimaginable that mere soldiers might even consider defiance of their king. Now, the Hittite king was also a warlord, as would be many Western kings in the coming centuries. We have seen, and will see again, the occasional example from Egypt or Mesopotamia of a king who leads his own troops in battle. Think of Sargon the Great in the late 3rd millennium BC. And again, later in the 2nd millennium BC, we will see Ramses II, king of Egypt, personally leading military campaigns against his enemies, including against the Hittites themselves. But these are exceptions, for the most part, among the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians. More often than not, the rulers of these realms would enjoy the pleasures of their courts and delegate military authority to their underlings. The Hittites provide us a first glimpse of a sort of kingship that will become more familiar to us as we study the West. The Hittite kings are combat leaders, endowed with the rugged kind of authority that moves their followers with respect for their personal accomplishment, for the, for the charisma of the king, and it doesn't rely purely on religious belief. Consider how often in the history of the West we see kings and other rulers of men who qualify themselves for leadership by victory in the field. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Constantine, Charlemagne, the Crusader kings, and so on. Furthermore, Western mythology, since Roman times, is particularly focused on such type of leadership. Think of King Arthur and Robin Hood as examples. Now, certainly there are many leaders in the history of the West who do not adhere to this paradigm, who resemble more closely the effete kings of the East. But in the West, the idea of a king who fights will remain thematic for nearly the duration of this podcast. Such examples are much fewer when it comes to modern times, but... Dwight Eisenhower is a fairly recent 20th century example of a man who most likely earned his time and power due to his military leadership in World War II. And up until the last few decades in the United States, it was considered very important for a presidential candidate to have a military background of some sort, even if it had not involved actual combat. But the Hittite kings, furthermore, were not only military leaders, they were religious leaders as well. The king was a high priest in Hittite society, 
And this is something that we will also see continuing in Western civilization for some time. The Romans of the Republican era, for example, appointed one of their ruling hierarchy as high priest every year. He was known in Latin as the Pontifex Maximus. Political leaders were also religious leaders in many Indo-European societies in the West. You can also look at Greek literature, history, and philosophy for more of the same. Consider how Creon, in his speeches given in the, in the play Antigone by the playwright Sophocles, consider how he wraps himself in a mantle of divine responsibility as the one entrusted by the gods to manage the state. Or how Socrates essentially describes obedience to the state as a religious duty, and therefore goes willingly to his death when condemned, even though he considers his fatal verdict to be in the wrong. In the West, we have essentially lost this tradition over time, this sense of the highest political authority also possessing a religious capacity. Though I mentioned before that there are many who still revere the U.S. Constitution and treat the flag of the United States as something sacred, this is probably one of the few remaining instances of such sentiment in the West. Now, in ancient Mesopotamian, and especially in the ancient Egyptian traditions, the rulers were much more often regarded as deities rather than as religious leaders, not intermediaries, really, but gods themselves. While religion and state are closely aligned for a long time in the Western tradition, already here, among the ancient Hittites and their fellow speakers of Indo-European languages in the later Iron Age West, we see a crack, a division between the two, between state and religion, which will generate a great deal of conflict down through the centuries until we arrive at modern times and the legal language of terms such as separation of church and state. This separation and its existence as a fundamental component of government is a concept conceived in the West and virtually unthinkable in the East for a very long time. The distinction between a king and his fellow men brings me to the subject of the last discussion for this podcast. I will speak now of social stratification, of the existence of classes of men, of economic distinctions, of rich and poor. I have spoken before of our long Paleolithic past, of the hundreds of thousands of years in which our ancestors lived in virtually the same cultural state, generation after generation, millennium after millennium, doing little different than their ancestors had done for time immemorial. We should not wonder at the natural conservatism of the human being. Change is something new for the human species. For the vast majority of our history, there was no change, neither in our way of living nor in the tools with which we fashion that living. Of the many cultural traits possessed by each individual band of hunter-gatherers, each of these traits that remained the same down through the eons, there was, perhaps most importantly, the bond between members of the same band. As hunter-gatherers, until some time during the last 10 or 12,000 years, humans most likely lived in groups of 50 or so individuals, perhaps a little more or a little less. Each member of this band would have been related by blood or marriage. Had you been a member of such a band, you would have known the names of all the people in it, and you would have relied on each of them on a daily basis for your own survival. Some hunted, some gathered, others cared for the children, Another watched the fire, cooked the food, studied the weather, observed the stars, fashioned the tools. 
Among hunter-gatherers, and this can be seen today in the few such remaining bands that remained in odd quarters of the world, among these so-called primitives, there is an egalitarian standard, an equality between the members. When a hunt is completed, for example, the food is generally shared equally. The same goes for the food gathered. All receive the same portion, though some may be more gifted than others in procuring food because each member of the band holds a place in the group. Each is a sacred presence, you might say, among the band of brothers. There is neither rich nor poor, because the most capable member is merely another limb of the same body that is the band. There is no discontent over the apportioning of shares after any hunt or any other securing of food supply. Indeed, the very idea of favoring certain members in this most basic need is almost unthinkable. Furthermore, no one is dressed in any finer fashion than any other. All members of one band live according to essentially the same economic standard as all other members. And then comes agriculture and large settlements and cities. And now hunting and gathering, these were not the only trades. They were not the only skills required. Men and women needed to sew garments, work in masonry, fashion shoes, care for horses, prepare documents, brew beer, fight as soldiers, perform religious rites, and so on. And each trade came to find its own value in society and a hierarchy that worked itself out naturally, perhaps, but went against human nature. Now, some men and women were more needed than others, deserving, as many thought, of more praise and more resources, such as land, cattle, food, and eventually money in the form of gold or silver. When one looks at the remaining hunter-gatherers in the world today and then compares their way of existence, the way in which they regard each other, care for one another, when you compare that to our own societies, to our own world, in which neighbors no longer even know each other's names, and the vast majority of pe people possess very little of the wealth, and a tiny number possess nearly all of it. When one sees this great cultural gap, you might ask yourself, how did we get here? How and why did things change so much? Why have we become an atomized society of lonely individuals, when once we were all brothers, bonded by blood and by the rigors of the hunt? Why it happened ultimately is not that hard to explain. As I briefly outlined above, the very foundations of society changed when we moved into cities, when we began living in larger groups, and it became impossible to know, let alone be related to in any way, all the people of your own village. Suddenly, you knew people who were not necessary to your survival, who meant nothing to you in terms of your daily life. Divisions of one sort or another were probably inevitable under the circumstances. And, to return to our primary topic, we see these social divisions in their newest state when we look at the Hittites, these fresh Indo-European speakers just off the steps of Central Asia, a society of people who were not all that long ago pastoralists, roaming the stark plains and lands and living day to day. When they came into Anatolia, the Hittites did not eliminate the Hattians and the others who lived there before them. This is evident in the continued influence of Hatti religion on the Hittite mythology in the following centuries, before Babylonian myths become more influential. The Hittites become the master race, essentially, the upper class of their new empire, creating a whole different kind of social stratification. And so, in a particularly Western way, an evolution of class distinction occurred in Anatolia that had already occurred long before in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And when the dust settled, after the conquest of Anatolia, and after the transition into agricultural and urban life in all other regions of the world, 
people found themselves divided from one another in multiple ways, in terms of the work they performed, the resources they possessed, in terms of who they were related to, and so on. This played out in a particular way in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and in a slightly different way in Anatolia, and among the Indo-European Western speakers. And ever afterward, there would be a struggle between the classes, a civil war brewing in every society. What was likely unthinkable to our Paleolithic ancestors, the band had turned against itself. In every realm, every kingdom, every nation, every community, there would now be multiple bands, multiple tribes, aligned not by blood, but by economics, by social standing, by their possession or dispossession of the goods in their city, in their state. And each of these tribes or parties aligned or not with one another and warring with those whom, with whom they were not aligned. So, as the ancient Paleolithic bands moved away from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and tra transitioned first into agricultural and then urban living, man shattered. He shattered like an image in a broken mirror into several pieces that could fit back together, but ever since have been nothing but jagged pieces that display only a fraction of the whole being that once was. There will be no resolution to this disorder in our study of Western history. The Hittites continued what would become a seemingly permanent trait of our civilization, inequality in what was once a brotherhood, division where once there was unity. Each city is a sea of conflicting interests and chaotic politics, standing where once there was only wilderness and a band of men, women, and children searching for food and living in harmony. The Hittite Empire, like many empires, fell not with one blow, but with a series of failures, retreats, and surrenders punctuated by the occasional insufficient victory. The Assyrians to the south, in northern Mesopotamia, grew strong after Babylon was weakened in the 16th century. Ironically, it was Hittite attacks which weakened Babylon and allowed Assyria to fill the power vacuum in the land between the rivers. The Hittites were not able to sustain their power or influence outside of Anatolia, though they briefly came into possession of the island of Cyprus in the Levantine Sea. In the, 13th, in the 13th century, the Hittite Empire, still strong, completed a treaty with Ramses II, the Egyptian pharaoh. Known as the Treaty of Kadesh, this agreement determined borders between the two empires in the land of Canaan, and also involved the delivery of a Hittite princess to Egypt to become one of Ramses' many wives. The treaty is one of the earliest recorded in history. But it was the last demonstration of strength in an empire long before weakened with the inevitable decadence fostered by a previous superiority. Centuries earlier, a virile people had come into Anatolia as conquerors, hardy men and women who remembered life on the steppes of Central Asia. But strong people conquer the world around them, make it easier for their descendants to survive, and those descendants accustomed to greater ease, lose the capacities of their forefathers and become subject to other people who have yet to surrender their strength and become decadent in turn. And so the wheel turns. In the 12th century BC, the Hittite Empire disappears from history. This is not the only significant event of the 12th century BC. In a later episode, I will discuss something known as the Bronze Age Collapse, 
a time when all the empires of the civilized world trembled in fear as invasions and the disturbance of trade routes overturned centuries of progress and plunged the ancient Near East and the surrounding realms of the Mediterranean into a dark age. In this dark age, the Hittites fade away. Here and there, for a few centuries after, smaller kingdoms of apparent Hittite ethnicity endure, but they seem to blend into the melting pot of the Near East. Their blood probably still runs, along with other genetic lineages, in Syrian and Turkish blood today. Other races of men would fill the power gap in Anatolia, such as the Phrygians, who will be mentioned at least briefly as we move on toward purely Western history. However, I have left out detailed descriptions of them and other peoples who also inhabited Anatolia before, during, and after the time of the Hittites. The Phrygians, the Hurrians, the Lydians, the Mitanni, the Armenians, these and other peoples all walk on the same stage with the Hittites, but our focus is narrowing now as we have picked up the scent of the West. There is still time and space to discuss significant events in the Near East, but there is a limit, a limit perhaps to your patience and my own. After all, I began this project with the goal of studying and discussing the ancient Greeks, my favorite cast of characters in the play of human history. However, I discovered that there was a layer under their story that merited my attention, and then there was another layer, and after that another. But I do have to move on. Like me, perhaps, you hear Agamemnon berating Achilles, Odysseus sighing with longing for Penelope, the footsteps of Greek hoplites marching from one battle to another on the other side of the Aegean Sea. Perhaps you hear Pericles orating before his fellow citizens of Athens. You hear Socrates sparring philosophically with his friends and hear the lecturing voice of Aristotle at the academy. And after them, the Romans rallying to defeat the Carthaginians and Julius Caesar grasping with gasping with shock as his assassins plunged their daggers into him, and St. Paul spreading a new religion throughout the Roman Empire, and the heavenly voice in the dream of Constantine before he faced Maxentius. And I could go on, but I won't. Instead, I will turn back to the Near East once again to ensure that we have enough background to understand the story of our Western traditions. In the next episode, I will return to the land of Egypt, which has now left behind the great age of pyramid building, but which remains a strong player in the regional politics of the Bronze Age Near East. After that, there will be a handful of episodes about the remaining matters in the Near East, about the end of the Bronze Age, and we will take a brief look at cultures in the Aegean that are not quite Greek, but certainly have a role in the foundations of Greek culture. Now, I want to take this opportunity once again to thank you for listening, and especially to thank those who have supported this podcast. In particular this time, I want to note the contribution of Richard Charlebois, a physician and listener who recently provided me with new recording equipment that should improve the quality of future podcasts. Thanks, Dr. Charlebois. Keep listening, and I will speak to all of you soon in episode 20 of the Western Traditions podcast. In the meantime, please remember to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. Look around, listen to some podcasts, check out my source lists, and buy some books if you see any that interest you. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast. <laughs>